They say that for many in the United States, religion is more about community than belief. Your local church, synagogue, mosque, or temple is where you worship, sure, but it's primarily a place where you and your family can feel a sense of belonging, to socialize with those who believe as you do. But for me, religion has never been communal. It has always been very personal. So personal that to even say what I believe out loud seems to lessen it, to package and trivialize it into a few finite words. This brings to mind the electron. Yes, the electron. Now, quantum physics tells us that this little thing is simultaneously a wave and a particle, but the mere act of observing it forces the electron to become only one or the other. It's always fascinated me as a kid, and even today, to think that there is an ultimate reality that is both wave and particle, that we as humans ruin by simply perceiving that it's there at all. Perhaps this is why, at various times in my career, I've written about both science and religion. There seems to be very little the two have in common, but I think it's all in the way you perceive religion. And that is the theme of this episode of Indie Voices from Forward Reviews. Today I'm talking to authors who are able to bridge this perception gap. I'm not going to talk about the conflicts between religion and science. That's been done to death, and it isn't even very interesting. This show is about how they can live together. Humans evolved with a quest for the spiritual. To deny it is to also deny evolution. With that, let me quote a passage from a book written by my first guest, which might explain what I mean. Didn't religion itself rise through evolution? No complex brain, no gods, no science, no arts, pigs don't pray, cats don't cipher, and dogs don't compose verse. Not even doggerel. Of all evolutionary consequences, isn't the greatest our attempt, however flawed, to understand the origin of life? This quote comes from a character named Silas Fortunato, who believes in science, yet continues to have mysterious experiences despite himself. Beyond that, though, I'll let the author himself tell us what he means. The book is called Celestial Mechanics, published by Three Rooms Press, and is written by William Least Heatmoon. You might recognize the name if you follow travel writing. His travel memoir, Blue Highways, was a bestseller. Now, in his first work of fiction... He's writing about one man's spiritual and scientific travels. Hello, William, and welcome to Indie Voices. Howard, good to talk with you. So in our review of your book, we call Celestial Mechanics an imaginative work about a quest for true connection. What is your main character trying to connect with? Silas Fortunato wants to link his time on our planet with something far greater than himself, something that could be eternal. However, and that's a big however, he wants that something to be empirically founded, Mm -hmm. something uh, free of assumption, free uh, of magical thinking. He calls himself, jestingly I should say, he calls himself a cosmetarian, a term that he makes up. If you ask a lot of people about whether they're religious, uh, they might say, I'm not religious in the traditional sense, but I consider myself spiritual. But that can mean many things. Is your character, Silas, spiritual, or is he trying to find a way to be spiritual? I struggle with that word spiritual because it has so many different meanings, difficult meanings, in fact, and largely because it can be approached empirically. Spiritus, the Latin, uh, means breath, but when we talk about it today, we're not talking about breath or breathing generally. In fact, so many times when we use the word spirit or spirits, we're uh, we're talking about ghosts. So we're not talking about things empirical. An urge toward the spiritual is a function of the chemical and electrical activity of our brains, the interlinked firing of neurons in our brains. As difficult as astrophysics and quantum mechanics are to comprehend, I think understanding the human brain is even more difficult, certainly for me. After all, it may be uh, (laughs) the most complex biological structure in the universe. 
when you break it down to its smallest components like that, you can define love as a chemical reaction. You can define any spiritual experience as a chemical reaction. Is your character or are you looking for a way to turn that into something more than just the sum of its parts? Well, I'm beyond my depth here, and I should (laughs) say, Howard, that I'm neither a scientist nor uh, a man of the cloth. So I'm just a storyteller trying to tell a good story that gets to some of these issues that uh, you've already raised here. Well, I could say this. I think our understanding the human brain really has to do with the chemistry of things. So that means, I suppose, science. Mm -hmm. If there is a spiritual side to that, then I wouldn't be the one to address that because that's not the way that that I approach things. Well, did you uh, use your main character, Silas, to uh, address that? Oh, I think so, yeah. He's the man that's trying to find a way between what he knows and what he would like to know. And some of what he would like to know has no no way of being proved empirically. But I would add, most of it does uh, for Silas Fortunato. Right. If, if it cannot be proved uh, empirically, then he probably is going to at least put it to one side, may even ignore it entirely. But then uh, how does he explain these mysterious experiences that he's having that could be called spiritual? Well, right. he, do- he doesn't explain right. them, and, and they're not explained in the book unless the reader uh, reads uh, with close attention to when he has these experiences, what the conditions are that bring them about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are about a half a dozen of those that appear in the story of Celestial Mechanics. And if the reader notes that there's a, there's a consistent approach before each of these experiences uh, begins. And if the reader notes that, then you have an idea of what's going on with with his head. And this leads to a character in the book named Kismet, Mm -hmm. who may be a witch, she may be something else. Right, right. Uh, We had an email exchange shortly after your book came out, and you told me, the separation between rational thinking and what we often term spirituality is one humanity must continually address. Why do we need to address it at all? Why can't things either be or not be? Why do we need to interpret anything? Well, for me, since I'm not a man who uses the word spiritual and I'm uneasy about the word spiritual, I don't need to interpret it. It won't Mm -hmm. change anything for me. But somebody who does believe in spirituality of one sort or another, who does use that term, then it's those people, I think, who need to interpret it. And I would certainly be interested in hearing their interpretations. But for me, that's not the way that that my character or my own thinking proceeds. One fascinating thing is uh, you quote Carl Sagan a few times in your book, and he's a a hero to many who have a a scientific bent. But he has a a few interesting things to say about religion. He uh, basically says that someday science will emerge as a kind of religion. Do you see that as happening? Well, we lost uh, Carl Sagan in 1996, I believe it was, uh, and he certainly was a fellow— that I, uh, whom I admired. Uh, and I think that maybe he may think along those lines, that is, that science becoming more of a religion. I'm not sure, though. I think he struggled with that word religion, too. Right. For me, no, science is not a religion any more than it's uh, economics or, or a mountain or a can of tuna. Right. Well, I should add that the exact quote is, uh, a religion older new that stressed this, the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe hardly tapped by the conventional faiths. Sooner or later, such a religion will emerge. So what he's saying basically is that sooner or later, we'll all realize that the real universe is much more interesting and fascinating and awe-inspiring than anything that's in the Bible. As you uh, interpret that line, yes, that that would be my thought too. I mean, we've tried to uh, create a religion that that <laughs> could survive all that, all that the human beings can do to it. 
uh, over the globe. We've been working at that for three or four thousand years, and you can see that we we're doing the same thing now that we we probably were doing in the beginning, and that's pulling out our scimitars and cutting people's heads off, uh, putting people in cages and throwing gasoline on them and lighting it, turning our backs on people who need our help. So whether it's going to happen again within the lifetime of anybody listening to your broadcast, I I don't know. I'm dubious. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose then to, to tell the story in a piece of fiction when you're best known for your nonfiction? Well, I think that the ideas in celestial mechanics come forth best uh, through a story. And in fact, that's how the, the, the whole novel began. I was thinking about the characters in a story, and I was thinking especially about a man, in this case, Silas Fortunato, the protagonist. He makes a mistake. It, it happens on the first page of the novel. He makes a mistake, and then over the succeeding weeks, uh, he continues to make that mistake, not the same mistake, but he continues to elaborate it in a way. And he gets in deeper and deeper through these mistakes, even though he's trying to think through these things rationally, uh, empirically, if you will. Mm-hmm. I thought it was important to follow a person doing this. And what happens is that finally uh, Silas Fortunato gets him down to the point where he's, got to, he's desperate and he has to find a way to, to escape, to defeat nihilism so that he can embrace the potentials of being alive on planet Earth. That's a lot of responsibility for one character to take on. <laughs> well, I think yeah, that's, that's a good point. But I think we all do that. No, no, I won't say it that way. I think we're all called to do that. We're here. Okay, what's the point of being here? As I, as I see things, we're here just because we can be here. Right. We had nothing to do with this. Uh, and we're talking about almost 14 billion years of getting us to this point. Well, I think if something's so big that it's going to spend 14 billion years to get uh, you and to get me on this planet, we have a responsibility then to do something with that all that effort that's come across from so many trillions of light years away from us. Is this what you mean by well, your lead character follows a philosophy he calls otherosophy? Can you describe what that is? The word here that might be carried best over, over our interview would be otherness. Uh, mm-hmm. And I illustrate that by if your listeners could hold up a right hand or a left hand, one of their hands, hold it up and, and look at it. Right there in front of our one's eyes is this complex assemblage of billions of different, differing uh, particles, elements, call them what you will, that are cooperating. They're working together to make that hand what it is. So we have hydrogen cooperating with oxygen. We have carbon and calcium working together, bones with tendons, skin with muscle. And that hand, it's a verifiable reality. It's evidence of othernesses working together to make something something new, something that will exist for the life, lifetime of the person. Mm-hmm. But the whole concept of it has been around for at least 100,000, well, more than that, several hundred thousand years uh, if we look at, at the ancestry of Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. The, the hand exists because somebody long before us needed that. So uh, once again, we're talking here about something that can be verified in this case uh, we can prove that with chemistry. We can prove it with evolution. They carry proof of, of why that hand exists and that it does exist. Well, let me quote another uh, part of your book back to you because it's one of those books where you read a passage and you just want to read it again because it's so beautifully written. Here's what I call a miracle. Celeste eats a peach and her body knows what to do with it, knows how to transform it into Celeste. It can transmute peachness into language, prayers, love. Now, this to me, it sounds like science meeting a little bit of spirituality because language, prayers, and love is uh, seems more abstract. Or are you describing science only? I'm probably not describing only science here. Uh, but it's another illustration, if you will, of otherness because otherness carries with it this implied moral ethic, which is that for something to exist, it's got to cooperate with other things around it. So minimally, 
uh, what we're talking about here is tolerance and, and maximally, if I can use that adverb, respect. And that's what Silas is, is working on to find tolerance uh, and find ways of respect. Tolerance is a really tricky thing, as, as he says. That is, are we to tolerate intolerance? Are we to tolerate cruelty, brutality? But I think it's at this point in which the religions uh, of the world, regardless of the religion, can connect with science and mm -hmm. embrace it because we know that to do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a very practical piece of advice, as simple as it is, as difficult as it is. And when people do that, we tend to get along. I think of, the, I think of Rodney King, the, the black man who was, was beaten by the police in L.A. back in the, was that in the 90s, I think? Mm -hmm. And his famous phrase, he uttered, why, why can't we get along? Right. Uh, it's a fundamental moral question. And I would point out here that dozens of the world's religions express that idea that we in, in, in the Western world, at least in the Christian Western world, express as the golden rule. It's, it's there everywhere. And I think behind that is this concept of otherness. Right. So in that way, science and religion are compatible. Depending on, on how you define religion and what you do with religion. Right. Silas Fortunato in the novel says that so much of what you and I are talking about now and what, what they talk about in the novel has to do with the definition of, of God. He, he says G-O-D could be an acronym for uh, grand original dispositions. Mm -hmm. If one accepts that, at least as a working definition of God, that means, I think, uh, by implication, that everything that exists is the Godhead. But it's more than that. It's also the principles to which all those things operate. And if you accept that, that, okay, everything that exists and the operation of those things, then I see no reason why that definition of, of God cannot embrace, uh, at least accord itself to a degree, in other words, science and right. vice versa. The science-oriented people and religious-oriented people might need to go through some mental gymnastics to arrive at that conclusion. Well, I don't think it would be gymnastics. Uh, I mean, I arrived at that conclusion. I was raised a Presbyterian, and I, I didn't really begin thinking in these terms until well into my life, although the questions were there. I found the progress from the simple things that I was taught in the Presbyterian Church and Sunday school, I, I found them an easy segue to, well, maybe easy is not too much. Mm -hmm. I found them a, an acceptable segue to, to get to the thoughts that I'm trying to express here today. It, there is a logic to it. And I must say the outcome is that in my mind, in my heart, if you will, that uh, my thinking about my being on this planet is much more harmonious and much more comfortable than it perhaps was at one time. Right. And we know that, uh, and you've mentioned this uh, in our conversations, that you see religion very much having to do with community. I, I certainly agree with that. But I think the great community is larger than what people sometimes hear in some of the from some of the pulpits, the communities with all with everything that exists, and it helps uh, in thinking about that to know a little bit about uh, the cosmos, and that's one of the reasons that the book uh, Celestial Mechanics is called Celestial Mechanics. Uh, right. we, a, a person needs to have a, a, a simple understanding, at least, of gravitational mechanics, which is another term for cosmic mechanics. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about now is we need to have a basic notion of why the moon doesn't fall into planet Earth. Why New York doesn't get wiped out by, by this moon crashing down on us. That's gravitational or celestial mechanics. A reader, well, not a reader, anyone really, I think, to, to follow along what we're doing here needs to be able to look up into a clear night sky and, and, and see all of those lights up there and try to understand four basic things, and that is distance, age, speed, and size. 
those four things, once you, you think about those and understand a little bit about them, and to answer those four questions or conceive of those four aspects of space, isn't that difficult. Why they're that way, that's something else. Right. But once one is thinking in terms of, of those four things, then we get into something that could get close to what we're talking about here today, and that's that uh, a spiritual notion. Because when I look up and I see that, I come away with awe. Right. And awe to me, if there's ever a spiritual uh, aspect of what we're talking about, awe would be at the heart of it for me. I look up and I think, my God, how can this happen? Right. Uh, how could this be? It's, it's, it's beyond imagination, except that's the only way we have to approach it. Your book is also about defining your own religion in light of science. It's something that I, that I do, too. I mean, what is less wondrous about quantum superposition and alternate universes than any miracle in the Bible? So here's a final question for you, then. What's your verdict? Are science and religion ultimately compatible? Yes, they are for me, but we probably have to define our terms a bit. If we're going to talk about uh, Western religions, I know more about those than the ones of the East, let's say. We're going to have, have to uh, step away a bit to make this work from literalism, right. both in, in, in Judaism and Christianity, we're going to have to understand that to say that the world was created in seven days is a metaphor. And to me, that doesn't mean it's any less godlike, defining God as, as I did earlier. So if we open religious up, a religion up, don't get too demanding in taking it literally, then I see that science and religion can share some ground. And I think that certainly I believe religion comes off better that way. And I think it may also, that is uh, this view of two forces coming together, I think it may help humanize and soften just a bit some of the hard edges for some people that science has. Well, I think I'm giving a false impression that this is a very serious academic book, and it's not. It's a very entertaining book. It has humor in it and great, uh, well-drawn characters, too. Again, the book is called Celestial Mechanics, published by Three Rooms Press, written by William Lee Steep Moon. And thank you so much for being with us. I, I really appreciate your time. Every time that we communicate, Howard, whether it's by email or, or by radio, your questions push me to the point of, of really demanding the most. Uh, it's not easy, <laughs> but I wish that more interviewers could have the perception that you have about what you've read. Well, thank you. That's good to hear.